And uh, the rest of us, if you'd turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, uh, we're going to try to get all of Hebrews chapter 4 in two messages, um, which means this week we're going through 13 verses, and uh, we'll be moving. Um, and uh, let me just also say and, and encourage you to begin to think of it this way. Um, I'm learning as I'm studying Hebrews um, the different way that the author of Hebrews thinks than other writers of the New Testament, and the different way in which he presents his argumentation and his ideas. And, uh, and so as we read this, I just encourage you to kind of note uniquenesses that you might see, and in that we, we kind of get to know the author a little bit better, and I think that way we're, we're able then to be more attuned to what the Spirit is, is seeking to teach us through this anonymous writer. Hebrews 4 verse 1. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for the opportunity to look to your word. We're grateful for your spirit who moves in our lives, and we pray, O Spirit of God, that you would fall upon us even now, that you would fill us, that you would control us, that you would set us free, that you would instruct us, that you would convict us, that you would comfort us. Lord, hold absolute sway over our hearts, and we give ourselves to you, and we ask that you would change us and mold us into the image of your Son. Grant to us, O God, everyone here, a sincere faith in you. We pray for our children and children's worship, and we ask that you would bless them, O God, with the knowledge of you. Open their hearts to understand who you are and what you have done for them, and give them, O God, a tremendous faith. We ask for these blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. So the opening proposition of the, the sermon, the, the primary, the main point, uh, if you will, the, the telos of the sermon is 
um, that I need a sincere faith. Sincere faith. What do we mean by that? Well, sincere means genuine. There's an element in which it carries the idea of true, a true faith. It means it's a faith that's free from pretensions. Think about that for a moment. We've all seen a pretentious faith. We probably could honestly look and see that we've seen a pretentious faith face faith in the face we look at in the mirror. That was an awkward sentence. The reality is we've we've experienced when we pretend to believe, right? We know what that looks like and, and we recognize it's a danger. Um Matter of fact, in, in the Old Testament, it was really an issue that the Old Testament prophets wrote about regularly in recognizing that within the people of God there was a tremendous risk of them having this pretentious faith, of having this, this insincere faith. We see it in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 1, as Isaiah is just opening up his, his prophecy, and he says in verse 11, He says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord. Now, the question might go, well, what are the multiplied sacrifices? Well, they were sacrifices that God commanded the people to bring, right? That they had to have guilt offerings anytime that they'd sinned. They had to have daily offerings. They'd have bread offerings. They'd have grain offerings. They'd have uh, drink offerings. Every year they would have the, the, the massive burnt offerings of the uh, things like Passover and Day of Atonement. And so they had all these offerings. But God is asking the people, what are they to me? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. What's God saying? Is he saying, I lied to you when I gave you the commands to bring all these sacrifices? Is he saying, I changed my mind? Never mind. No, I really don't want them anymore. Is that what he's saying? Of course not. Both of those are inconsistent with the very character of God. What he's saying is, stop trusting in the sacrifices. That's not what you need. You need me. He's telling the people, you have an insincere faith because your faith is actually placed in the activity, in the religious activity, instead of being placed in me. We see this when we look at verse 18, where he he begins to expand this just a few verses later. He says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. You notice what he says? He doesn't say, come now, let us go to the temple, does he? He doesn't say, come now, be more faithful at synagogue. He says, come now and let us reason together. Let us dialogue. Come and meet with me, the true and the living God. You, a person, me, a person, let's meet. This is a sincere faith. It's not in the activities, it's in me. And what's the result? Though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will be like wool. He's saying to the people, it isn't the sacrifices that are going to cleanse you. It isn't the sacrifices that are going to forgive you. It's me that will do that. And so come to me and stop having an insincere faith but instead have a real, sincere faith in me. We see it in Micah chapter uh, 6. Uh, Micah 6.8, we're all familiar with uh, the song, 
Um, he has shown you, O oh man, what is good. You know that. And we could all start singing it, and it'd be wonderful. But, but we, I want us to look at verses 6 through 8 to get a sense of the context in which that, that uh, song is found. Verse 6, he says, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? There's the prophet saying, okay, so I need to go and worship with God. I need to go and meet with God. What do I need to bring with me? What are the accoutrements to my coming to Him? What are the sacrifices that I need? He's wondering, what, what form does my religion need to take if I'm going to come before God? He says, shall I come to Him with burnt offerings? With yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? These are all the legitimate questions. He's saying, what would be enough? What would be great enough? I'm coming to God. I've got to have these. I need rivers of oil. Not a little anointing. I need thousands of rams. One won't cut it. I probably ought to give up my firstborn. Is that what I need? And look at what, his, what the response is. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? You see what he says? It's not the sacrifices. It's not the accoutrements. It's not the religious activity. It's the reality of doing justice, loving kindness, and walking with God. This is the weighty issue. This is what happens. He says, it isn't about these other things which can allow you to continue with an insincere faith. It's the issues that are brought out from a sincere faith. That's what you bring before the Lord. Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 58 deals with this again in the context of of uh, fasting. He says in verse 5, Is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed, and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? How about you? <laughs> I read that, and my first response is, well, kind of. <laughs> Until you asked, I would have said that. <laughs> Until you, you put it that way, that's what it seems. Isn't that a fast, right? To where I'm going to bow my head? Isn't that a fast? I'm going I'm to put on sackcloth? Isn't that the fast? I'm going to stop eating? Isn't, isn't that an acceptable day to the Lord? But you see, what Isaiah is saying is it's not about that. It's not about the accoutrements. It's not about the religious activity. There's something more. The, the truth of the fast. Why do I give up eating? Why do I give up the other things? And he tells us specifically why that is in verse 6. Is this not the fast which I choose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness? To undo the bands of the yoke? And to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Think about it. Is it a good fast to just not eat or... Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? What's he saying? He's telling the people you need a sincere faith, right? You need a sincere faith. The first century Jewish culture rewarded outward show. 
You remember what Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount as he gives some instructions about the, the danger of uh, outward show. Um, actually, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, he says, When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your, go into your inner room, Close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You see, at that time, the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees would seek to put on a big show of their holiness. We remember the, the scene of the two men who are praying side by side, and one is a Pharisee and the other is a, a tax collector, and the Pharisee saying, I thank God that I'm not like other men, like this sinner, right? And he's saying it with a really loud voice so that everybody gets to see exactly what, what's going on. And the other man bowed his head, wasn't even willing to look up to heaven, and he says, Be merciful to me, the sinner. Because he was just praying to his father. The Pharisee was praying to the crowd. There was at that time a reward that was given for this public displays of piety. Good thing we don't have anything like that, huh? We can see it here too. We have that same risk, don't we? to begin to, to be more interested in the, in the public display, to begin to put our, our, our um, to honor those who have such a show. But the author of Hebrews invites his readers to step outside of their culture, to recognize that it isn't the show, but what they really need is a sincere faith. And in that same way, he's inviting you and me to be sure that we have a sincere faith. How do we get there? Well, the first step is that we need to believe the gospel. To believe the gospel. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. I want to look at just uh, four different uh, phrases from this section and, and allow that to, to give us somewhat of an understanding of, of this passage, and then we'll, we'll begin to break that down and apply that to our lives and what that then means to us. Uh, but the idea of believing the gospel, first of all, he says, but indeed we have had the good news preached to us. Good news preached is a single word in the Greek text, and uh, it's uh, the Greek word euangelizo, which blesses your soul, doesn't it? Um, but if, if you listen very carefully to that, first you have ou, which means good, E-U, like eulogy, a good word, and then uh, uh, angelizo, angel, or message, good news. That's why it's translated as good news. But it's also the word that when we transliterate it, that is when we give an English letter to each of the Greeks, Greek letters, we come up with the word evangelize. We could translate that as gospeled. For we had the gospel preached to us. That is to say, we've been evangelized. We've been gospeled. Thoroughly gospeled, right? Not nearly enough. I hope to gospel you some more. But what he's, what he's saying is that we have had the gospel preached to us. And what's, what's really cool is it's in the perfect tense, right? Isn't that awesome? Which simply means it's a completed action with ongoing effect. 
When Jesus says it is finished, he says it in the perfect tense. It's a a completed act, but it has ongoing effect. When Paul says you have been saved, it's in the perfect tense. It's a completed act with ongoing effect. He says you have been gospeled. It was a completed act with ongoing effects. But then he also says, just as they also. Who's the they? The Old Testament believers that he's talking about, right? The, the, the Jews, the Israelites. Israelites, te- technically. And it could be, and probably is better translated, exactly as them. Because the, 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 the bringing together the, the two words that are brought into that word, it means exactly that way. Exactly that way. You have been evangelized exactly like they were. Those Old Testament people receive the gospel. You see what he's saying? The gospel's present in the Old Testament. The gospel isn't a New Testament thing. The people in the Old Testament had the gospel. We see this in uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. I can eventually find it. He says, even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of the faith who are sons of Abraham. So he's beginning to uh, point out that it isn't just being a descendant of Abraham that saves you. It's being of the faith of Abraham. The faith of Abraham. What did, God, what did Abraham believe about God? That he would forgive him, right? That was his, his, his faith in God. He didn't know the name of Jesus But he knew that God was going to send a Messiah who would die for his sins, and he was waiting for that, and he looked for that, and he believed in that, and it saved him. That same gospel was in the Old Testament, and they knew that. Notice that the next uh, line that I want you to recognize is that it was not united by faith. Because it was not, it did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. That is to say, the issue is they didn't truly believe. Now, most of them probably would have said, oh yeah, I believe, right? But their life demonstrated that they didn't actually believe. The last thing I want you to notice in verse 1, therefore, let us fear. Let us fear. He's saying, let us be careful. Let us be aware. We have a risk, don't we? We have a risk of going the same way they did. It's possible for us, too, to have an insincere faith. And if we recognize that, we can begin to take the steps in order to be sure that we have a sincere faith. What are those steps that, that, that we want to take in, in believing the gospel? I've got to be sure that I'm believing it, which means I need to listen carefully. To listen carefully. I want to talk for just a moment uh, uh, about some of the philosophical moorings of our faith. Um, because philosophy isn't just pie-in-the-sky stuff. Philosophy is the foundation upon which we make the decisions in our life. All of us have various philosophical ideas that we hold to and that we believe and that we live out on a regular basis. We don't always articulate them, and philosophy is the effort to articulate them and to understand them. And so I want us to do that. To do that, we need to think about the idea of propositional truth versus what we might call experiential truth. Propositional truth is the idea that there are statements that can be made about reality that are true or false. Okay? 
statements that can be made that are true, to focus on that, the idea that we can declare what is true, as opposed to the idea of experiential, which is, well, we can't really make statements like that, but we kind of we know it, we kind of experience it, and when we experience it, it becomes right. The beginning of the 20th century, there was a theological movement that's known as liberalism. And, and the, the, the issue of liberalism, liberalism still held to some extent the idea of propositional truth. They simply rejected the idea that the Bible was true. They simply rejected the idea that the, the propositions found in the Bible were true. And so liberalism just set aside the Word of God altogether. And we can see the problems that come from that. But there were some people who took, tried to take a, a middle ground be, between the, the, the idea of uh, evangelical Christianity and liberalism, and, and they built this uh, new view, which is uh, neo-orthodoxy. And it was neo-orthodoxy that began to question the concept of propositional truth. And is it a reality when it comes to Christianity? And the way that they did that is um, the, the neo-orthodox would say of the Bible, not that it is the Word of God, but that it contains the Word of God. They would not believe that there were propositions, statements made in the Bible that were true, but they would believe that there were events that occurred in people's life that were impacting, and the individual wrote about that impact. So they would say that it doesn't mean that Abraham actually sacrificed Isaac or took Isaac up onto Mount Moriah. The event of that didn't probably really happen, but Abraham had some event in his life that he wrote down as though this took place, and that event was, became the Word of God for him, and as we read about it, it can become the Word of God for us, but it might not. And they would begin to expand that, that, that you could also have a slice of pizza, and in that moment God meets with you, and that, that becomes the Word of God in your life. And some of you say, no, I've had some pizza like that, but I, I don't think that's exactly what, what, what they would mean. But you see, what they're doing is they set aside this idea of propositional truth, and that's expanded upon with postmodernism, which we face today, in which we live in a very postmodern culture, and the postmodernism of today would say that that. You can't really say that a statement is true or false because it's really unclear. And it might be true for you, but it's false for this person or for me. And so it depends on each individual. And so truth isn't something that you can have a statement and know that it's true or false. There isn't any of that. You see, the difficulty with that is then, where is salvation? It, it, it finds itself completely in opposition to the Word of God, which continually gives us propositional statements that are true. And it's important for us to, to grasp that when we start thinking about the gospel because there are clear propositions about the gospel that we find in Scripture, such as 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, which I think is going to come up here pretty quickly. Boy, the tension is awesome. Sorry to put you on the spot there, Holly. Which says, for I delivered to you of first of importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That is, that is clear propositions. Those are statements that the author believes are true, and they are presented as absolutely true statements, right? There's no question about that. And it's either true or it's false. That's the reality of the statement. We believe it is true. And we cling to it, and it becomes the very foundation of our salvation. We understand our salvation in that proposition about what the gospel is. 
Galatians 3.2 helps us to understand a little bit more. Um, here's the thing that goes on as you're preaching. Your mind goes in many different areas. I think I now remember, just so you know, it's not Holly. I don't think I put that slide in there, did I? Thank you. That's on me. She has done a fantastic job. So, but she wasn't saying it, so well done. Thank you, Holly. Galatians... And I don't know why I'm thinking, I should be thinking about the next point, right? <laughs> but, but that's where the mind goes. Galatians 3.2 tells us something that's really important as, as we think about this idea of propositional truth. It says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? By hearing what? By hearing a proposition that is true, right? It's by hearing that they gain faith. That's how they receive the Spirit. That's how they were saved. Uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 17 Uh, takes it even farther than that. It says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That there is a propositional statement of Scripture that we hear, that we listen to carefully, and we believe, and it transforms our lives. We hold to the idea of propositional truth. The word of God is truth. And we read it to understand that truth. So if I'm going to listen carefully, I need to read my Bible. Basic stuff. I need to be reading it every single day. I need to be listening to the preaching of the Word of God, a faithful exposition of the Scripture on a regular basis so that I'm understanding it more deeply. But that's not the only two ways to get the Scripture into our hearts. I've already alluded to the song, Micah 6.8. He's shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You can sing it, right? It's how you know the the, the Word of God. It's by the music that we sing. How much of the Scripture do we know because we've sung the Scripture? That's why the Bible even tells us to sing in Psalms. Psalms, not just the psalm psalms, but the the recorded uh, inspired word of God to sing it to one another. That's great. And also fellowship. Fellowship. It's a word we use, and and I think sometimes we we use it uh, more broadly than than we ought. Um, It it is a word that means sharing. But when we think about fellowship, I want to think a a little bit differently. You know that I'm a Denver Bronco fan. Okay, I, I make no, no uh, mystery about that. Uh, very, very clear. I'm very excited about the start of the new year with a new quarterback. Uh, we've done this before to where we've got a, a quarterback toward the end of his career who comes in and takes us to the Super Bowl. Uh, Craig Morton did it. Um, who is that tall guy? Uh, Manning, that's it. And now we've got a, another one, Russell Wilson. I'm excited, you know, and I'd love to sit down with a cup of coffee and talk to you about the Broncos. That would be wonderful. But it wouldn't be fellowship. Fellowship is when we're going to sit down over a cup of coffee. It's still an important part. And we're going to talk about Jesus and his word and the effect that he's had in our lives. That's fellowship. We're going to talk about our faith. Why do we do that? Because we we both need it. Because we want to listen carefully if we're going to believe the gospel. And you know what else? Our memories fade. I know more people than I wish I did who went to churches as children, studied the Bible, walked away from the faith, and then I talked to them later in their lives. And, and when they were young, they knew the Bible. 
You know, they won their Bible reading contest. They had their Bible memorization, all of that. They were great at it. But you know, when they get a little bit older and they start telling me what the Bible says, eh, it's not quite so. It's not quite as clear as they think it is. Which is probably true of me too, isn't it? Maybe what I remember isn't as clear as I thought it was, and so I need reminders. And so we renew every week as we get together. We renew our memory of the Scriptures. To listen carefully to the Gospel is essential. But we must also believe. Believe. Verse 2 says, But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith. I want to remind us that faith dwells in the will, not in the mind. James 2:17 tells us, even so, if it is no works, is dead. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. That faith is something that is lived out. Uh, we've got this uh, illustration of the train. Um, and this is, uh, was actually uh, drawn by uh, one of our former members of the church. Um, uh, wonderfully helpful. Uh, the idea is this is an illustration of the heart and how the heart works. And you have the mind, the will, and the emotions. One of the problems that we have in, in Reformed communities, and one of the problems that the Jews and the, old, the Israelites in the Old Testament had, is that we want to posit faith in the mind. We want to think that faith occurs in what we think. And if I think it, therefore that is what I believe. But James says, faith without works is dead. We've got, to have, so we've got to put it into practice. There's got to be some action. And that's when faith occurs. That we have a thought that we put into action. And that's where faith occurs. The idea that Jesus died for your sins. It's a thought. What does that mean? First thing it means is there's no other way of salvation, right? Jesus died for my sin. The first thing that's going to do, if I believe that, I'm going to leave every other option for salvation. I'm going to leave it away. I, I want nothing to do with it. I just want him. The second thing it's going to do, if Jesus died for my sins, that gives me the confidence to go to him and confess my sins, right? If I believe Jesus died for my sins, it's going to give me the confidence to repent of my sins. This is what faith in that proposition means as I begin to put it into practice and I begin to live out what this is. C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd was a, a professional cricket player either late 19th century, I think it's late 19th century, in uh, England. And he was super popular, super good. I mean, he was just a superstar, kind of the Michael Jordan of cricket, if that's such a thing. Um, but uh, that's where he was. And, and he was also from a very wealthy family and uh, was doing very well. And he left all of that to go on the mission field. And when asked why he would do that, his response was, if Jesus Christ is God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. Amen? That's faith. That's faith in the proposition, Jesus died for my sins. And what that then means for me. It's a powerful message. The first step is I've got to believe the gospel. If I'm going to have a sincere faith, I've got to believe the gospel. Secondly, I need to rest in Christ's work. Let's uh, read through verses 4 through 11. 
and you'll note an, an occasional highlighted word. I just want you to take note, and if you want to count them, that's not a bad thing. Verse 4, For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, They shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. He's clearly talking about the importance of our work. Wow, not any response at all. I guess, what's the opposite of amen? Uh, Nima? Uh, maybe? <laughs> Was that woe? <laughs> boo. <laughs> so Tim's giving us a good solid boo. No, he's talking about rest, right? Nine times in these verses, from 4 through 11, he uses the word rest. Nine times he uses it. That's a huge number of times. He's getting something across to us. He wants us to understand that he's talking about rest. And we think about rest, there are several different ways in which we might think about it, several different ways in which the first century Jews would think about it. One way would be the idea that, that entering the promised land was entering into rest. That they were looking forward to going to the promised land because that's where they would find rest. And that's why he talks about if Joshua had provided it for him. Joshua was the one who took them into the promised land. The second way they would think about rest is thinking about the Sabbath. They would have a Sabbath rest. One of the challenges of that is by the first century, the Jews, uh, the Sabbath rest had so much religious work they had to do that it was a big hard work, wasn't it? And all these rules attached to it. So they weren't really able to necessarily rest. They just ceased from action, which is a different thing. And the third way that they might think about rest is what this passage refers to as my rest or his rest. And that's the everlasting rest that starts now. Let's think about rest for just, just a moment and, and to, to consider this idea of, of what it means. I'm going to be able to rest when I understand that my work is insufficient. My work will never cut it. Before I became a Christian in 1982, I believed in reincarnation. Now, I was a, a, a young man, but I, I wasn't uh, a, a casual believer in this doctrine. I was a careful student. I was very engaged. And uh, um, anyway, and the idea of reincarnation was that when you do something wrong, what we might call a sin in, in this life, I would have to pay for that in another life. The other problem, and this is really becomes a difficulty, is we always start out imperfect. So the sin that I commit in this life, I will pay for in another, in which I will also sin, in which I will need to pay for it in another, in which I will also sin, in which I'm about to fall off the edge of the stage. You get the point? It's this never-ending cycle. And Robin's comment to me very lovingly with her gentle voice, well, that's stupid. <laughs> you never get to heaven. It's impossible. 
It's a never-ending spiral. Not unlike if you think of the yin and the yang. Neither one ever catches the other. It's never-ending. It's always going. My works will never be sufficient. It's not unlike the myth of Sisyphus. You know the story of him, right? He cheated death twice, and so Zeus said, I'm going to make you push a rock up a hill. And as soon as he gets to the top of the hill, it rolls off again, and he's got to start over again. And that's how he spends all of eternity. That's exactly what I began to see that my belief in reincarnation was. It was a religious Sisyphus. There was no hope in that. But Luke 17, 7, Jesus gives us the same idea as he speaks to Jews. And he says, Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? He starts out and he begins to say, think about the, just the relationship of the slave. What is, what is the job of the slave? The job of the slave is to serve me, right? And when the slave has worked out in the field like the slave is supposed to do, I don't thank him for that or reward him for doing the thing he's supposed to do. I say, no, your job's not done. I still need dinner. You need to come in and fix me dinner. That's your job. You need to do your job. It's what you do. This is what your lot is, Right? This is what he lays out for us. But then he turns it on its head and shows us that we are the slaves and God is the Lord. As he says, so you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Think about it. God created you. What gives you right of anything from him? If you obey completely, well, of course you do because He's God and He made you. That's what creatures created by God do. That's just it. That's the bare minimum. There's no commendation for that. There's no award for doing the bare minimum, right? You don't, you don't give a, 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 a rock a gold medal because it was a rock. It was, it was a rock. What else would it? It's just a rock. The problem is that we're created to do all that, but we live in rebellion, to make it worse. But if we did everything right, there's still no reason why we should be commended by God. We still need, we're still unworthy. We haven't done anything extra. We've only done that which we ought to have done. And I think that when I come to that place of recognizing that my deeds don't commend me to God, I can rest. It's not going to make him more happy if I just do a little bit more. It's not it. I actually need Jesus. I need him to have done it. And I can rest in what he's done. Now he's saying this to these first century Jews, which really believed in particular that their Sabbath observance was the key. So when I understand that my work is insufficient, then I can rest, rest. Remember the story of uh, <coughs> some kids uh, during the time in which the barnstormers used to go around uh, the country and take people on flights when uh, air flight was brand new. 
and uh, they would land and uh, people would go out and fly. And I remember these, this family, the story of a family who had their uh, farmer father. And they said, well, we're going to pay for you to have a flight. And the farmer father's just not real sure, but okay. So he gets on the plane, comes back. They say, what would you think? He said, well, that was pretty nice, but I'm not sure I could quite trust that machine. So I never quite put my weight fully down on it. <laughs> I, I think many of us, our faith is very much like that, right? It's, it's we never quite put our weight down on it. Yet he's carrying us all along. But we, we, we still try to, to put our, our trust in ourselves and to learn to really rest, to rest in him, to set aside worry. Think about what worry is. Worry is just fear of the future, isn't it? Fear of the future. But the future that we fear is one that hasn't happened, right? Because that's what future means. So it's one that we've only imagined. It only exists in our head. And as you think about that future that you're worried about, picture it for just a moment. You know, you know where you worry. When you're worrying, where's God? You see, you've imagined a future and the bad that can happen without God. Well, in a future without God, it's something to be worried about, absolutely. But it doesn't exist. And it can't exist begin to think about what I worry about and imagine God there. For those who want, that's just another way of saying, but God, right? To go to that place. And then accept the past. That's maybe harder than not worrying about the future, isn't it? To accept the past. Because you have sinned. You've sinned grievously. You've hurt people, right? But Jesus died for those sins. All of them? All of them. But I've also failed. Right? Not necessarily sin, but I've failed. Romans 8.28 says, God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him who are called according to his purpose. I like the line that is attributed to Billy Graham, that God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. That is to say, he takes a yardstick that's crooked and he still draws a straight line. Right? He can use even your failures somehow to bring about good for his people and glory to his name. I'm sorry, did I say can? He does. Always. So I can accept the past. And then I can release control. We fight for control in our life frequently. And it's even an illusion when we think about it. Really? What do you have control over? Seriously? Not a whole lot. Right? Mostly over that person I look at in the mirror. That's about it. But I have this illusion of control. And have you ever noticed... The people who are trying to control things the most are most often the people who are most bothered by life, right? They're just flustered. They're, 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 they're just stressed out all the time. Then there are these other people who just kind of like, oh, God's got this, and they're just going along life happy as can be because they've learned to rest, recognizing God's got this. He really does. To turn loose of that control to trust God. And you know when you do? You also set other people free. You're not having to control them anymore. 
You're letting them live their lives. This is what it is to rest in Christ's work. First, I need to believe the gospel. Second, I need to rest in Christ's work. And finally, I need to recognize that God examines my heart. Verse 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. How does that make you feel? We've been trained to be afraid of that, haven't we? That should make me terrified, right? We'll, we'll, maybe parents will use this with their kids. God sees what you're doing, right? And, and we expect that to just get them all, all straightened up. I'm not sure that's what the author of the Hebrews has in mind. I want us to think about for just a moment. As I wrote this, I was thinking of you. There were individuals in this flock that came to my mind as I looked at what God sees. And what does God see? He sees all your sinful thoughts, right? All your sinful thoughts for which Jesus died over 2,000 years ago. That's what he sees. You know what else he sees? He sees your compassion for hurting people. He knows it. Other people might not notice, but he sees when your heart turns over when you see someone struggling. He sees your deep love for God that is the very core of your being, that when everything else is taken away, that's who you are. He sees that. He also sees your sadness when you hurt. And your resolve to forgive the person who hurt you. He sees it. He also sees your sadness when you hurt another. And your resolve to change. And not do that again. He sees the faith that is the very foundation of your life that you believe. This is what he sees. He, that there's no creature hidden from his sight. That's not nearly as frightening, is it? Because he looks upon you through the eyes of love through the person of Jesus. Therefore, submit yourself to God's word. The Bible is God's word. It is an objective standard of what's right and good. It shows us that it's not just our actions uh, that matter, but it's, it's the thoughts and intentions that matter. He judges our thoughts and our intentions. So what do we do with that? As I recognize that's true, I want to order my life, order my thoughts, after the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, tell us how important this is. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. 
We are destroying speculation and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He's judging the thoughts and intentions, and so I want to fill my thoughts with the Word of God. I want Him to declare that which is right. I want to think that which is right. And then I need to trust God's perspective. I use this frequently, and I'll talk about truth is God's perspective on a thing. That I want God's perspective to guide my thought. I have to trust it. We see that in verse uh, verse 13. There is no creature hidden from His sight. What is it that He sees? We've talked about that. I don't know if you're anything like me, but I want to be right all the time. I actually expected somewhat of an amen on that one. Right? And not just, yeah, we know you do, Pastor. But, but, but you join with me in that desire. And I hope, actually, that every single one of us wants to be right all the time. I really do. But there's two different ways in which we can understand that. The wrong way of understanding that is, when I say I want to be right, what I'm really saying is, I want rightness to change, to conform to whatever I do and think. Right? That's what I usually mean when I say I want to be right all the time. And that ain't right. What I should mean is, I want with all of my heart to think and to do that which is right, which means I need to continually change. That's what I want. There's some of you I know, that's just the core of your being. But I want to be right. Well, how am I going to do that? What's got to be following after God's perspective? What does he see as right? And as he examines my heart, where are the errors that are present? I need to confess them and repent. Where are the strengths? Where are the successes? I need to thank God for those and strengthen them. God examines my heart, so I submit myself to his word and I trust his perspective and I seek to live that out. In John chapter 4, we read uh, Jesus' words to uh, uh, the Samaritan woman. He says to her, But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And there's a a lot of debate that goes on about what is spirit, what is truth. Um, Some who will say, well, worshiping in spirit is worshiping enthusiastically. You know, I've got a spirit going. Um, Others will say, well, worshiping in truth is worshiping in a reformed fashion. Yeah, <laughs> and I'll, although that strokes my pride quite a bit, I'm not sure either one of those are right when I look at I mean, that's taking our context and what we mean by spirit and truth, and it's forcing it on the passage, isn't it? Nowhere in the scripture do I ever see the idea of, of doing something in spirit is just doing it enthusiastically. Nowhere, right? So what does it mean? Well, when I talk about what does it mean doing things in spirit, well, he says it to Nicodemus just before this, that you need to be baptized in the spirit and water, right? Oh, maybe it means by the Spirit of God. So I need to worship in the Spirit of God. Maybe it means I need to be born again. It's as simple as that. That's what it means to worship God. Is I worship in spirit means I've got to be born again. What does it mean to worship in truth? Well, maybe it just means to truly worship. That's what the word means. Aletheia. It means true, truly. To worship Him in spirit and truly. Sincerely genuinely, 
without pretension. Doesn't that fit with what God tells us all the time? That he wants us to sincerely trust him. He wants us to have a sincere faith. Meaning we believe the gospel. Meaning we rest in Christ's work. And meaning we recognize that God examines our heart. Let's pray. Father, I pray for this congregation, for everyone who's here. Lord, my heart's desire is that no one would leave this building today who does not possess a sincere faith. So we come to you and we plead with you for that faith. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.